Welcome to Coffee with Catholic Workers, a podcast made by and for Catholic workers. I'm Theo. And I'm Lydia. We've both been a part of the Catholic Worker for the last decade, and we're excited to bring you conversations with Catholic workers from around the world. Today we have Tenzi Hernandez joining us from Beatitude House in Guadalupe, California. She shares with us the story of stumbling onto the Los Angeles Catholic Worker while still in high school, how rootedness in a community grows over time, and how running a Catholic worker in a small town is different than doing so in a big, bustling city. Now, here's Tenzi. Well, Tenzi, thanks so much for being willing to talk with us. Usually, we start episodes off by asking folks, how did you come to the Catholic worker movement, and, and what did your Catholic worker journey look like that eventually you wound up there on the central coast of California. Right. So um, my particular journey uh, started when I was young. I was 18 and um, still in high school um, and really uh, searching for um, my place in uh, the Catholic Church and beyond the Catholic Church, just what was mine to do in life, um, given the things that I was reading about. And I, of course, had gone to school at um, uh, Catholic school all my life, uh, all girls Catholic high school. And it was in senior year that we were introduced to uh, of course, Mother Teresa and St. Francis and sort of the big names, never introduced to Dorothy Day. Um, and I was really fired up with feeling like I needed to live my faith. And um, consequently, um, I thought to on Good Friday uh, with the leftover bread that we had had at the school to celebrate the Holy Thursday Eucharist, I thought we should pass out that bread to the homeless on Skid Row on Good Friday. So very naively took a friend with me and literally was thinking of passing out bread on Skid Row on Good Friday. And we happened to turn on one of the exits of uh, downtown. And we made a left and at this building, didn't know what the building was, there was this huge banner that says, today Jesus is crucified in Central America. And so this would be in 1986. Didn't even know much of what that meant, but I saw that there were priests and nuns um, there. And I thought it must be Catholic why don't we just go check it out and ended up participating in what was the good station, good Friday stations of the cross and just sort of wowed by the experience. And again, not being at all political, um, just felt like, God, th this is something authentic and true and was standing there as people sort of were folding up banners. And then I see this van sort of swoop in and I see this group of people kind of go into the van and they drive away. And, and I have no idea what just happened. And 
this homeless guy comes up to me and he says, I've never seen you before. Are you new to the Catholic worker? And I didn't even know what that meant, but he was homeless looking and I thought, oh good, we could give him some bread. <laughs> and so he says, oh, you, you don't know. Oh, you have to come to the kitchen and you have to meet Julie. And anyways, uh, sort of long story short, I ended up, we ended up going to the Catholic worker soup kitchen and meeting uh, Julia, who's now a long, long-term Catholic worker, who was there preparing the meal for the homeless men that were staying there at the Catholic worker on the top floor of the kitchen at the time. And I, I literally could not believe what I was experiencing. I, I sort of thought like, oh my God, this is... <laughs> This is exactly what Jesus would be doing. And so then uh, she invited me to participate in the summer program. I had been praying and praying for a sign for something to indicate what I needed to do that summer. And, and there it was. And so I participated in the first LA Catholic Worker Summer Program. And, um, and to me, it felt like... Um, it was the absolute closest thing to anything I could imagine Jesus doing if he were alive today. And I was completely bit. And, um, and so lived uh, the experience of, of the summer program, but had already applied for and been accepted into um, university. And so I went to my first semester of university and I hated it. And I just thought like, these are very, very important years in my life and whatever I do and whoever I'm with are going to shape me and who do I want and need to shape me. And having had that experience in the summer, I realized that the Catholic worker would be the one. And so I left, I left university and then came back to the LA worker and was there for the next four years. And um, really, really um, molded by and really taught by um, not only the ideas of the Catholic worker, but was really, for me, it was the enfleshing of those ideas, you know, and the seeing the real concreteness of what it meant to be a disciple of Christ in today's world. So I did that for, um, yeah, four and a half years. And, and then, uh, I, I left for a while because I sort of needed in those years, Catholic worker was my only identity and I sort of needed to see myself as, you know, what is mine and what is Catholic worker. And I needed to sort of delineate that. So I spent a year in a monastery and it was a, a profound experience uh, because all of the ideas and the thoughts that I had um, not been able to process in the very busy life of Catholic worker was now being able to sort of just deepen for me in that year away. And um, 
So when I left the monastery, I sort of felt like I wasn't ready to go back to the Catholic worker. And instead, I ended up uh, working as a lay chaplain at, a, at the county hospital in Los Angeles. And it's there where I met Dennis, who would then become my husband. And um, in, as our friendship was sort of growing and deepening, we realized that there was a real sort of hunger and longing to live the Catholic worker life, but to do it as a couple, we didn't feel so drawn to being in a huge city and through sort of a series of networking and friends and so forth, we ended up coming together to um, a very small town in Central Coast, California called Guadalupe. And, um, and it's where we've been for the last 27 years. Um, so we are a certain kind of unique Catholic worker because we're, we're not in a big city. The town is only, gosh, I think it's about 8,000 now population, but it is a farm working community. And, um, and we wanted to be in a small community, in, in a small um, uh, rural community where we could do and live and practice the acts of mercy in, uh, in a context that wasn't sort of that inner city hustle and bustle and all of that, that we were really wanting to um, I mean, certainly felt gratitude for, you know, all the inner city um, experiences that we had had. But at that point, we were feeling like we wanted to to see if we could try to do something in a smaller community. And so what does what does that look like for you all there in living out these works of mercy in Guadalupe? Yeah. So. Um, Guadalupe, first of all, the Virgin of Guadalupe has just all of my life meant so much to me. And so to be in a community that has her name was just awesome for me. Um, and, and to be with um, migrant farm workers has been an incredible journey. So just a little bit of background, my own, my own family uh, comes from Cuba and I uh, was born here, but my siblings all were born in, in Cuba. And so the experience of, of, of being a migrant is very, very close to me and very near to me and um, came with all of the the baggage that comes with migration, you know, the sort of reinventing yourself in a new country. My, my mother uh, learned English, my father never did. Um, really living uh, very simply, you know, um, for most of my childhood. And, um, you know, just that sort of aspiration that comes with being an immigrant family and your your parents have so much hope 
and desire for your well-being and, you know, education greatly impactful in my life, trying to navigate, you know, sort of living in a bicultural reality, being in my family, speaking and eating and all things Cuban at home, but then being in a more sort of white culture existence in my day-to-day. Um, so working through the, the bicultural realities and really identifying with people who were new migrants. And so that would be um, certainly a lot of the people that I was with in, in LA, but then having come to Guadalupe, realizing that this influx of families coming in and, and them trying to navigate what it means to live in this country and just having a real, um, hope to be a bridge, you know? So when we arrived, we, we didn't intentionally want to start a Catholic worker. We, we wanted instead to sort of live in the community and just see what the needs were. But um, th there happened to be, uh, th there's only two Victorian houses in Guadalupe and one of them happened to be empty. And we realized that it was empty and we looked at it and thought, God, this would be a perfect Catholic worker house. So sort of, we, we started searching and looking and seeing who owned the house. Well, we called the owners to see if they would rent to us, but we had no credit history and we only had literally $300 in our pocket and we thought like clearly they're never going to want to rent to us and they they said well let's just meet and just a side story i was like steady telling dennis let's just not go they're going to like completely laugh us out of like guadalupe and they're going to think like we're ridiculous and dennis was like no we really should just give it a shot they showed up with the only bumper sticker that I had seen in this area before, during, and since. I've never seen a bumper sticker that says no uvas, which is the um, uh, the United Farm Worker bumper sticker. <laughs> and their car had that on it, and I just couldn't believe it. And so they they sort of started showing us the house and we're looking at it really close and we're saying like, oh, this is like too perfect. They're never gonna wanna let us live here. It ended up that they knew uh, friends of ours from LA who were friends of the Catholic worker priests and so forth. And so when we sort of shared these mutual credentials, they said, you know, we, we'd be happy to rent it to you. We, we understand what you want to do. We we can't let you be here for free, but like, could you afford $400 a month? And at the time we couldn't because we literally only had $300, but we called Catherine and Jeff and we said, look at, we want to start this Catholic worker house here in Guadalupe. This is the rent. Could you help us out? And they did. And they helped us out with rent for one year. And we were so grateful. And in that year, we were able to make enough contacts to then 
create our own sort of sub support, local support so that we could pay the rent and then continue on with our Catholic worker house and have for the next 27 years. So it almost seems that for us, it really is um, like this sort of experiment in living on, on the grace of God, you know, just when we absolutely didn't know where, how, <laughs> when, with whom, and just each time the door has been opened again and again. Wow, that's all pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> so, so what do the works of mercy and just the general Catholic work look like day to day uh, nowadays around Guadalupe? Right. So when we when we came, like we we were almost like the Mormons because we didn't even have like enough money to like drive around. So we just literally walk around or ride our bikes around and just talk to people and just people that we ran into. And, you know, Guadalupe, because it's such a small community, like you have really, really friendly people and people who were just curious about who we were and what we were wanting to do. And so we just started asking like, what are the needs? And, you know, at the time there were lots of different, you know, ideas popping up. But one of the things was that um, like the traditional soup kitchen wasn't necessarily a need there because each person, each sort of group of people we ran into had their own little humble kitchens or dwellings where they would cook for their family, but they absolutely like needed like groceries and food to be able to cook with because, you know, the, the work in the fields um, is, is really paid pretty poorly. And so um, anyways, so we were able to start like a food distribution. And so that that was among the first things we started. And then there was this need to, you know, people were wanting to learn English. And so we started an ESL program. And then people were telling us that there was sort of like a community clinic, but even to go to it, though it was a sliding fee scale, when you don't have $30, you don't have $30. And so they couldn't go to the, you know, doctors. And did we have any doctors that would be willing to help? And there was a doctor at the time who said, you know what, I'd love to do a once a week clinic. So we started a, a weekly clinic and we started a, a closed distribution program. And then each of these things opened us up to what we were really wanting and our deepest desire was to create a place for relationships. So the deepening of relationships happened and as we over the years have experienced it is that we see that it's almost like a sacramental experience that we've had from literally births and baptisms and, you know, first communions and rites of passage and marriages and divorces and deaths, you know, sort of like the lifespan of, of our lives in a small community. And it's been 
most incredible as I've seen just my own transformation and growing in um, an understanding of, of God and, of course, Jesus within the context of the suffering poor, you know? Um, and to, to that end, I feel like my own spiritual journey has just multiplied tenfold, you know? Um, and, and it's one that continues to happen sort of daily, you know, as, as we try to enter into our reality on a day-by-day -day basis as the needs um, come each day, you know? So, so that's in regards to the works of mercy, but um, we also are about 20 miles from Vandenberg Air Force Base. <laughs> Who knew? And, um, you know, Vandenberg is um, really the, the place where the missileers um, are trained um, in all weapons um, that are ICBMs. And so um, we from Guadalupe see and feel and hear the shaking of the house as the ICBMs are tested that then land in the Marshall Islands. And so um, the aspect of resistance for us is um, having us go to um, Vandenberg for monthly vigils, but then also on, you know, bigger uh, days like Hiroshima, like um, January 22nd for the ICANN vigils and, and other times um, to really witness to the, the ill-spent money on weapons and especially weapons of mass destruction and the robbing of the poor in spending the millions on that, multi-millions on that, instead of on the needs that we see daily. So doing this kind of work, both with the relationships and hospitality, but then also this, this witness and vigiling, um, they can't really go unnoticed in a town of 8,000. Um, <laughs> what is the dynamic like in doing such public work in such a small town? Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because um, the, the community of, of Guadalupe, it, so let's see, uh, the, the community of the people and the people that we serve and are with really don't have a clear sense of who we are and what we do or, or why we do it. That that's a better way to say it. It's like they, they, they trust us implicitly, but they can't quite see like the bigger picture and don't understand at all the Catholic worker movement. What they, what I think they understand 
is that um, and live and it's a mutualness is is a trust so that when uh, Dennis uh, risked arrest and then was jailed for four months at um, Metropolitan Detention Center, uh, we told the community of what we were doing and why we were doing it and the consequences of it. And it was really interesting because like nuclear weapons are not at all on the radar of farm workers. <laughs> but what is on their radar are two things. And one is speaking truth to power. So however that is. And the second is, of course, the experience of incarceration. And so when Dennis was in prison for the four months, I had people literally coming to me daily with plates of food, with, you know, prayer vigils, with anything and everything I needed because they understood what it meant to have a loved one in prison. And I felt like that was one more way to connect with the community because they now were able to say, we identify with you in a sense of having a loved one in prison. And so, so in that aspect, we almost feel like our lives in service in the community is, is very holistic the aspect of resistance and all of that are things that maybe they they don't relate with as much but they respect us in doing it as we do it that's a great question though <laughs> i i'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more of like what does the life and work of that community in guadalupe look like generally I, I had never heard of Guadalupe, California until I was at the LA worker. Right. But then one day when I was in St. Louis, I, I was buying some salad and saw that on the back that it was grown in Guadalupe. And right. so there's probably other folks out there right now eating lettuce, eating a salad that was grown in your community there in Guadalupe. Right, yeah. So so Guadalupe is is almost an island because uh, on one end of it, on the western end of it is literally the Pacific Ocean. And then on the north, east, and south of it, it's surrounded by uh, fields, fields where strawberry, lettuce, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower is grown. And um, I think I heard that, you know, California provides over 50% of the produce that is used, maybe even 70% of the produce that is used in the US. So, and a large chunk of that happens on the central coast because the weather is so favorable. Um, and so the, the, people that live in Guadalupe are the harvesters of those fruits and vegetables. And um, they're, 
there has been in just the the years that we've been here a growth in in the production of strawberries in the harvesting of strawberries because that is actually where more money is made by the people that own the land and so because of the increase in the harvest of strawberries now we've had an increase in the people that come to pick those strawberries tend to be from a particular region of of Mexico called Oaxaca and that uh, is a region of mostly indigenous um, Mexicans um, whose language is Mixteco and Spanish would be their sometimes second language. Many people are now arriving who don't even speak Spanish. And typically uh, the Oaxacan farm worker um, is, is generally sort of shorter. And so they, they are the ones that are used to harvest the strawberries because strawberry harvesting is literally bent over all day long uh, picking the strawberries. And so um, typically it's the, the Oaxacans that tend to do that job. Um, so there's a growing number of uh, Oaxacan field workers who are now living in Guadalupe, but we also have a, a community of Salvadorans who also fled the, the civil war uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And, and they tend to be the ones who pick the lettuce and the cabbage. And then you have the sort of general uh, Mexican that would be north of Oaxaca, who would be the ones picking the uh, broccoli and celery that's also picked here. And most of the folks that we serve, I would say up to 90% of the folks we serve are undocumented. So they would have uh, crossed um, in very, very difficult and I say traumatic uh, experiences often as we've heard, you know, the stories in the, you know, semi-trailers packed like sardines um, in, you know, really horrible uh, conditions, crossing the desert, um, drinking from um, the, the troughs that the animals drink from uh, that they've come across and that they would filter the water from these troughs to drink because they didn't have enough water to, to, to drink themselves. Um, just very, very difficult conditions, uh, horrible conditions, traumatic conditions that they're here so that in many cases they can uh, work enough to just sort of subsist here so that they can send whatever extra money back home to support families, many times children, but sometimes parents um, in the dire conditions that they have left in wherever they're from, Mexico or Salvador. Yeah. You all do a, a health clinic there. Do you, do you see like the results of that? Like 
very difficult work uh, coming into your clinic? Right. That's a great question, Theo. So, yeah. So initially we started um, the, the clinic as sort of like this acute for acute, you know, uh, problems, if it was, you know, muscle strains or infections or so forth. And over the years, um, we've seen the, the need for and have been able, thank God, to address sort of the accumulative um, stress that happens in the lives of people who've, who've lived such you know, stressful lives, traumatic lives. And so um, we now uh, are able to treat and see quite a bit of, you know, sort of like the, the mental illness that happens with, um, you know, PTSD and, um, you know, depression and anxiety and all of those things that we see and the way those things then affect the body in the way of, you know, diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and so forth. And so we, we are able to, though it's literally a drop in the bucket, address some of these issues um, with the excellent doctors who come and we're able to, you know, buy a lot of the medications that we're able to give, but then also um, we have a lot of uh, over-the-counter medications that we can give. And then over the years, though not specifically right now, we've been able to offer, you know, acupuncture and massage and different things just to try and really address some of the, you know, stress-induced medical issues that happen. So you've been, you all have been doing this for quite some time. Um, I think you had said 27 years. What, what do you find it is that keeps you going that has allowed this to be something that you've been able to dedicate your life towards? So when, when we came, Dennis and I had said, that, you know, we were going to give it five years. If it was easy, hard, or anything in between, we were committed for five years. Because as we know, um, in Catholic Worker, especially starting anything, it can be very, very difficult, you know, and we didn't want to be led by the immediate sort of emotional experience of things. And so we really wanted to give it some time. And it's really been over the years that we found that, oh, this is the place where we've been called. And it's really been uh, the community that has sustained us. And there's hardly a day that passes that we don't have somebody from the community bringing us food, which is their way of saying thank you. Or certainly our supporters who 
just miraculously continue to donate so that the work can continue, you know, and, and we really see it, have seen it as this is, this is the way God has shown us that this is the way we are to walk, you know, almost like one step at a time. And, and our work is, is humble in that, you know, we, we don't serve the hundreds of thousands or hundreds anyways, like they of course do in LA or in other major cities. Um, but it's really wonderful to be able to, in our food distribution program, know almost every person that's there and their story and their struggle and their kids. And, you know, it, it's, it's a relational thing that was really what we were wanting from the very beginning and over the years. And that's, and that's the thing with, relationship is that there's a time element there, you know, um, there's something about knowing somebody for a little bit, but then knowing somebody for a longer stretch really has you have an inner experience of their lives and their dreams and their hopes and their struggles. And it's, it's, deeper you know it's it's a deeper experience of of what it means to serve so what advice would you give to younger folks uh thinking about making this a life are there any important practices or anything you would really recommend hmm. tagore was somebody that i was reading back in in high school and he's um an Indian poet, novelist, um, and he 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 said something that I just have have held so deeply all these years. And he said, "Let the beauty you love be what you do." And I feel like it's something that Dorothy could have said as well, or that kind of said the duty of delight, um, because. I just think it's it's so important to give our lives to our deepest yearnings, you know, and to to do it um, with with this idea of you know you you have your yearning and then as it's being lived that it then almost transforms itself almost as like in art or or poetry or or dance you know that it it's 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 your life that you you kind of like have this place that you you start and then in the doing it it transforms itself into what it needs to be you know and um and i think that joining our lives with those who who have less but not only less economically but who don't have sort of the privilege of of status or class or family or any of that 
that they really, really, really live on the grace of God. And, and so, you know, seeing that and being so moved by that and realizing like, oh, that's all of us. But I think sometimes we, we get caught up in thinking that we have more control or say about our lives than we do, you know? And here the poor are again, like showing us, we all of us rely on the grace of God day by day in whatever we do. And um, certainly the community has, has echoed that again and echoes that daily really for me as, as I'm with it. Yeah. Any things that we haven't hit on yet that you feel would be important to share? Hmm. I think that, you know, the, the Catholic worker has so many, and it's one of the things that I love so much about it is, is this idea of personalism, you know? And so the, the Catholic worker is not, and Dorothy said, it's not an institution, you know, it's a movement. And, and so as a movement, there's, for me, the, the, the strongest idea of the Catholic worker is this idea of personalism. And so, you know, how is it lived in each one of us? Not necessarily from a house or, or even in a community. I mean, though community is what nourishes us or can nourish us, but it's, you know, how do you live it on a day-to-day basis? And, and how is that a part of your everyday life? Um, and, and so for me, it really is like the expression of the, the first communities after Jesus died, you know? Um, th- they as I see it, they were Catholic workers, you know, they, they lived day to day on where and how the spirit was moving and who was coming to them and how they could heal and how they could serve and how they could live with one another. And all of that is the Catholic worker at its finest. And, and how do we come back to that um, on a you know, daily basis in our lives, but then, you know, touch on it as we, you know, Theo have our sister house gatherings or the Midwest gathering or the, you know, PLC or the ALC, or, you know, just these ways of coming together again and renewing ourselves and then going back into the work and going back into the place where, Jesus lived, you know, was with the people, was with the day-to-day as he was going from one place to another and things were happening and people were coming to him. And God, isn't that the life of a Catholic worker day by day and who comes to the door and who knocks on the door? And sometimes it's so difficult and it's when we need one another. And sometimes it's so life-giving and it's when we're able to give at our best, you know? And not from us, but through us. Well, thanks again, 
so much for being willing to take the time and talk to us, Tansy. <laughs> you guys are so patient. Thank you. <laughs> so we want to thank Tenzi so much for joining us and sharing her experience and a little bit about what it's like uh, to be in Beatitude House in Guadalupe. Um, we really appreciate the time that people take to bring their stories uh, to share with all of you all. I, I've never lived in a town as small as 8,000 before, let alone been like the infamous Catholic worker people in that small of a town. It, I'm glad Tenzi was able to share her perspective on it all with us. It is interesting. I think that sometimes with the Catholic worker, there's so much focus about um, on houses that are in the big cities that we sometimes forget about the important work that needs to be done in small towns and rural areas and, and everywhere in between. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite things about the Catholic worker is that uh, decentralized look around where you are and try and fill the needs where you see them in your own place. Uh, it sounded like they were very intentional about that when they were starting out too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would imagine that there is also a piece about being in a small town uh, that for better or worse does hold this sort of piece of accountability of, of if you start saying that you're holding to these Catholic worker principles, um, people will see if you're consistently living them or not. Um, that's that's both like a a huge opportunity for witness and and quite some pressure all at the same time. Yeah, there's there's no anonymity in that small town. Um, which was also, you know, very much a good thing Tenzi was talking about. You know, she knows almost everyone who comes there and their stories and their struggles and is able to, like, really be in relationship in that community, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think about in Chicago, we, we have enough trouble trying to know half of the names of neighbors on the block. Uh bit of a, a different dynamic for sure. Yeah. And I think of, uh, you know, you asked that question of what's it like being the, the protester nuke people also in town, something Tenzi said is not on a lot of folks radar around there. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine being in that position. And, you know, she, she asked kind of, or I guess she, she thought more like, Maybe folks don't really understand what is the Catholic worker, what is happening at the Catholic worker. Um, and, and I don't know that, I don't think that that's like unique to them at Guadalupe. You know, what is the Catholic worker to just the average person? Uh, it'd be interesting to like just survey folks adjacent to the Catholic worker, but not like fully deep in it, like the folks we talked to on the show here. 
I would say it would be interesting even to get the responses of folks who who stay in Catholic workers for hospitality or who come through soup kitchens. Um, I know one guest we've had who was he had stayed with us several times and was trying to like figure out like what is this and someone was trying to explain it to him and all of a sudden he was like oh you're like a group home and like this is he was it was like this moment of obviousness of like well duh like that makes sense why didn't you just say that to begin with and we we're like sure that's close enough that that works yeah it's it's funny uh having those interactions with folks because i've also had people be like oh so you're like a bunch of like brothers or nuns or something like that too and it's like well not really but i guess if that's the closest thing you can get in your mind we'll just leave it there for now well i guess that sort of points to the uh the marketing problem or pr problem that the catholic worker uh can sometimes has perhaps this podcast i don't know that this podcast clarifies any better of like what the catholic worker is um, but at least give some people some examples of different people's interpretation of it. That wraps up another episode of Coffee with Catholic Workers. If you want to reach out to us with any comments, suggestions, clarification of thought, etc., uh, you can email us at coffeewithcatholicworkers at gmail.com. Uh, we want to thank Chris from the Bloomington Catholic Worker for help with editing, David Hayes for our music, and Becky McIntyre for our graphics. Thanks again for joining us for some clarification of thought. We hope today's conversation has been enlightening, and maybe even that you're encouraged to go out and help build a world where it's easier to be good.